welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast series. My name is Heather Ludke, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. The Environmental Law Institute has partnered with Sidley and Austin LLP to launch a new podcast series entitled The Enforcement Angle. Through the year-long series, our goal is to discuss state and federal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations with senior enforcement officials and thought leaders on environmental enforcement in the United States and globally. The host of the series is Justin Savage. Justin is a partner and the global co-leader of the environmental practice at Sidley and Austin LLP. On today's episode, Justin speaks with Jessica Taylor, who is the director of the U.S. EPA Criminal Investigation Division, or CID, and Doug Parker, who previously served as the CID director from 2012 and 2016, and now serves as a principal at RPO Strategies. Thanks, Heather. Justin, Doug, how are you? Doing well, Justin. Good to be with you. Yes, happy to be here. So before we talk about CID, uh, starting with Jess, just tell us about where you grew up or anything else you'd like to share about yourself. Sure. Um, I really grew up all over. My father worked for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. So we moved frequently, um, always returning to headquarters in Washington, D.C. Um, went to school mostly locally um, at the College of William Mary down in Williamsburg. And then uh, started a career in federal law enforcement at uh, age 24. So um, I'm married to an active duty Air Force pilot, and we have two sons. Doug? Uh, yeah, grew up in Connecticut and uh, worked uh, coming out of college, went to school up in Maine, went to, uh, and after that, uh, I was a history teacher and a lacrosse coach for three years before I moved down to D.C. Uh, and then uh, got it joined the EPA at around 25 and then uh, transitioned to uh, to CID, um, married as well. Um, we have uh, three kids uh, and moved around a little bit with CID, but currently here in the DC area. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned family. I mean, I think if you're in law enforcement, there's they're part of it and there's there can be some long nights, but just, I think I have a sense of this from Jess, but maybe starting with you since your dad was in the ATF, just walk me through how you got into law enforcement and then your career uh, progressing up to director. And then we'll turn it over to Doug after you're done, Jess. I think, you know, in our family service and responsibility, um, there was core, right, in what we did. Um, growing up, we were all taught uh, to carry our own weight, right, both, both literally and figuratively. Uh, you know, uh, public servants, uh, we would usually take our vacations, we'd be backpacking or, or hiking, usually in the Shenandoah Mountains. Um, sometimes to more exotic locations, but certainly as a family of six, we were all taught to literally carry our own weight, right? And so I think that was my first introduction to kind of um, how am I contributing, right, in both large and small ways. So, you know, I ultimately pursued a degree in public policy. Um, law enforcement for me was, I think I was really looking for something tangible, um, uh, you know, for me to both protect and serve and contribute. Um, initially, I learned the ropes as a Secret Service agent for the first part of my career. Um, and then transitioned and went into management at the Department of Agriculture, Office of Inspector General, um, which was really this unique combination of federal law enforcement and protecting natural resources, right? It's this unique field that I think so few people have the, um, 
kind of ability to do. It's, it's so it really linked me to kind of the environmental crime work I'm doing now um, at uh, EPA's uh, Criminal Investigation Division. Doug. Thanks, Jess. Um, yeah, I, I sort of stumbled into my career as a special agent at EPA. Uh, I was down here in grad school, also studying public policy. Got a job in the summer working in EPA's budget division, which helped to pay the bills so I didn't have to paint houses for my 11th summer in a row. Uh, and then from there, I started, uh, I had real interest in, in law enforcement. Uh, I came from a background where service was also important. My dad was a minister and my mom worked in education. Um, and I, so I felt that, you know, ultimately law enforcement is an extension of that. And I began to apply to uh, other uh, federal agencies for special agent positions. And then uh, about the same time, EPA started ramping up its criminal program uh, after the Pollution Prosecution Act. And so I was kind of at the right place at the right time. I was already in the agency. I knew a little something about uh, the environment, um, but it was my first foray into law enforcement. So uh, I moved from uh, a budget analyst to a, a fledgling special agent and then spent the next 24 years at CID. And uh, I found it incredibly gratifying. Not every day was perfect, but there were a ton of good days. And, uh, and I think I was really drawn to it because um, I like to think I'm mission driven and the folks in the broader agency and, and as well as, as CID really uh, carry that same ethic. So it was a great run for me and I'm glad I stumbled into it. Well, Doug, I'm, I'm sure you missed the excitement of being a budget analyst. It had to be terribly boring to be in <laughs> CID as an agent in comparison. You know, I, I, I said to myself, I felt like I was doing more for the environment when I brought my recycling out to the curb. Uh, and there are really smart people in that space, but it wasn't for me. I needed a score at the end of the day, the week, the month. I mean, it comes from, you know, playing sports and coaching and, uh, and ultimately, you know, you get measured and you have results in law enforcement. And that's what really appealed to me. Yeah. And th this discussion segues into, uh, I think a broader one, just about, what is CID and its mission? And just, just starting with you, pe for people who aren't familiar with CID, just tell us about it and its mission. So CID is EPA's law enforcement, criminal enforcement arm. Um, we focus on criminal conduct threatening people's health and the environment. So there's a larger kind of office that we're a part of. I, super I manage uh, and supervise uh, the special agents and analysts dedicated to criminal investigations, but we also, um, have some incredibly talented criminal enforcement attorneys and our forensics lab out in Denver. Um, you know, a lot of folks uh, wouldn't know this, but EPA special agents are fully authorized law enforcement officers empowered to enforce environmental laws as well as federal law in accordance with the guidelines established by the by the AG. Um, you know, federal government, a lot of people refers to series. So the series is called an 1811. It's the same series used by FBI, Secret Service, um, different office inspector generals. Um, you know, and I just uh, toss it, I'll toss it to Doug next, but I, I think what I've found here right coming up on five years is just the diversity and the perspective of background. And I know Doug, I'm sure remembers this. Um, I think what really separates us is we have former attorneys, former scientists, former engineers, um, former law enforcement. I think in, when you have a more homogenous type of environment, you can produce results, right? But I think the totality of the folks we have here at CID really allows us to, to accomplish amazing things. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, I wish I thought of that and, and said that earlier, Jess. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's spot on. And, uh, you know, I think when I started, it was kind of a bucket of, you know, former military uh, and law enforcement, um, you know, folks with some environmental background, which I guess I had, and then kind of true scientists. But you do. It's a great it's a great mix of people. And I think uh, that it's it's only we're only CID, the former we is only successful because of this three legged stool that uh, uh, just mentioned. Incredible attorneys, uh, incredible technical support and, and subject matter experts. And that's really the foundation. Um, agents are one part of it. And sometimes agents think they're more of it than they should be. Uh, but it's, it's totally that three-legged stool that, uh, that makes it successful. Doug, it's, it's once CID, always CID. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. I, I mean, sticking with you, Doug, a little bit, you're in the private sector now. And just starting with you and then turn over to Jess, what, what do you see from the other side now or some of the biggest mistakes or misconceptions that folks make in the private sector about CID? So I guess I'd put it in a couple of buckets. On the one hand, um, I've seen individuals and companies who don't take, um, you know, interactions early interactions with CID seriously. They, they kind of confuse it with the inspection process, et cetera. So some, and, and CID is not well known, even in the, a lot of elements of the regulated community. And so I have seen folks who have, you know, kind of not taken interactions with CID, which means they're probably under investigation uh, as seriously initially as they should. On the other hand, I think that it's important to know that CID is, you know, I, I characterize it as kind of a welterweight that punches above its weight. Um, it is not an enormous organization with um, tremendous resources. It does things um, by, you know, working really hard, scrapping, um, finding experts where they can. So it is not this over-resourced behemoth. Um, and, but at the same time, they bring a real sophistication uh, to what they do. In my view, they take on the most complex investigations out there. Not necessarily always the most important. I don't want to confuse those terms, but the most complex. And so it's really important if you have that interaction and engagement to um, to really, you know, take it take it seriously. And I think some folks don't, and and that can be a mistake. On the other hand, some folks certainly do, and and that's the appropriate course. Um, and then I think, you know, frankly, from CID, I'll, I'll give a perspective on the outside that um, there are times that, you know, agents and staff don't understand the power that they bring uh, in their work. Um, conducting an interview, knocking on the door of a company, uh, etc., um, can send shutters down companies' <laughs> spines. And there's tremendous power, and it's always important to wield that effectively, and I think the agency and, and CID has, but they carry tremendous weight. Jess, do you want to add anything to that? or? Yeah, I, I actually, uh, spot on. I, I agree with everything uh, Doug said. Uh, I loved his comment, right, about, you know, our size, right, and and the, the we, we hit at, and I think, you know, a common theme for our folks is that you're just not going to outwork us, right? Uh, we're grinding it out, and I think uh, that was important in what Doug just said. Um, yeah, and I think that the clarification 
um, you have different, very, very many different tools at EPA, and we're one of those tools. Um, and I think a lot of folks confuse who's doing what, um, and, and that's important at the outset. Um, so I thought that was a good uh, delineation that Doug made. And sticking with you, Jess, and then maybe going to Doug, just, you know, you, Doug mentioned knock and talks, other things that CID does as they're conducting an investigation. What, what does CID look at, Jess, or the factors when they're considering whether to open an investigation? So, you know, case opening, right, is kind of a significant moment, and we get tips and leads from everywhere, right? Citizens, uh, local law enforcement, uh, regulated entities. And for us, it's the two big, two big factors, right? It's significant environmental harm and culpable conduct, right? Those are the two biggies. There are always a variety of factors at, at case opening that you're looking at. Those lead us, those guide us. Um, you know, the threat of harm, actual harm, repeat offenders, violators, um, deliberate misconduct. I think those are the, really the things we're looking at um, as part of our function as that tool, that criminal enforcement tool. You know, certainly we work very closely with our, uh, our civil counterparts um, at EPA, uh, but those are, those are the, the two main factors. Anything you want to add, Doug? Or I think she, I think she hit it. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it with the current director. <laughs> and sticking with you for a moment, Doug, and then we'll go back to Jess. Uh, you know, sometimes you'll see a CID investigation that begins at a company and starts looking at individuals. Why does just from your prior vantage point, and then let's let's hear Jess's perspective. Why does CID investigate individuals for folks who aren't? Uh, familiar with the division? So, you know, deterrence in a word. Uh, you deter future conduct by holding individuals accountable for wrongdoing, uh, much more so than companies. And so there is a intense focus on finding if there are individuals who are culpable for criminal conduct. You know, 40 plus years ago when CID started, I think it was, you know, 80% of the defendants were companies or corporate organizations and 20% or fewer were individuals. You know, most recent statistics I've seen are that's flipped on its head. 80 plus percent are individuals, 20% are companies. And there's a place for, you know, certainly corporate accountability. Um, but if you can drive that accountability to individuals, um, the view is that's the absolutely the greatest deterrence. And that's what you want to do, not just in environmental law enforcement, but obviously in, in other, uh, other fields of law enforcement. Jess, you want to add anything to that? Completely agree with Doug. I mean, spot on. Um, the acts, I mean, you know, we, we get this question a lot, frankly, and it's just the acts of an organization are committed by people, right? Um, it's individuals who are the decision makers, right? A, a brick and mortar building can't decide to do a criminal act. Um, you know, so exactly what Doug said, I thought I totally agree. And, uh, you know, criminal sanctions are some of the strongest deterrents to future behavior that, that I can think of. And, and sticking with you, Jess, just let us, or, you know, talk about the role, if any, that whistleblowers can play in a CID investigation. Yeah, they can be critical. They can be critical um, to any potential investigation. You know, they're often on the inside, obviously, and uh, reveal relevant potential criminal conduct. And I think their kind of sense of justice and integrity um, is often what leads them to us uh, or to any, any uh, law enforcement organization. 
about half of our initial what we call leads, right? When we're taking a look at something before it becomes a case, about half of those come from tips from external parties. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think they're essential um, with the information they bring forward. And I think it's it's messaging, right? And letting them know who to contact um, and then being aware when, when wrongdoing is committed. You know, there's also whistleblower protections. Um, so individuals can come forward without fear of reprisal. So I think it's ensuring that folks know those protection, that companies do that. Yeah, I'd agree. You can, some pe- folks can make a career um, off the right whistleblowers. There's a obviously a subcategory of disgruntled employees within there who sometimes find religion after they've been shown the pink slip, but uh, they too can be, be critical. And, and sticking with you, Doug, you know, you've got the perspective as a longtime person inside of CID and a leader and now in the private sector. So starting with you and then maybe getting Jess's perspective, what do you see as some of the most common issues with compliance programs that might lead to criminal conduct or an investigation? So I think there's a couple of areas. Um, one is prioritizing operations, production, um, and, and even capital expenditures over compliance. And compliance can be viewed as a, uh, you know, a secondary focus. And oftentimes, seen companies get in trouble when they, you know, they lose sight of, you know, the compliance as, as a primary focus. So I think um, that is uh, certainly one. And I think also, you know, ongoing repetitive violations. You know, when when conduct continues and continues, and it's been addressed from an administrative standpoint and a civil, and it continues. That's oftentimes where CID or other criminal investigators can can come in. So keeping compliance at the forefront and understanding that repetitive violations are um, certainly going to be a signal of interest potentially to the criminal program. And then foundationally, it's truth. You know, false and misleading conduct is the the biggest driver of of criminal investigations and prosecutions, at least in my experience. And so ensuring that ethic and that focus is driven throughout an organization um, to me is is really critical in staying staying away from uh, my former colleagues in a criminal investigation. Any other thoughts, Jess? Yeah, as Doug, as Doug was talking, I wrote down truth, so it was perfect. We're on the same wavelength here. Um, I, I, uh, I, 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 you know, obviously I'm on the the public side, but I think the culture of any organization is very important and can dictate and guide decision making um, related to comp- compliance programs for their employees. You know, I mean, they have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to communicate and ensure compliance with your programs clearly and effectively. And I think. You know, once we get involved, Doug touched on this, telling the truth and being honest is paramount, right? Um, and I think um, that's ultimately what we're looking for is just, you know, companies uh, really beating that into the brains of their employees, right? Honesty, telling the truth. And, and that's really going to ultimately um, strengthen your compliance program. And let's stay with you, Jess, for a moment and, and get your perspective, your official perspective, and then maybe Doug can can offer uh, his too. Um, but you know, this is not a dance. CID does by itself. You ultimately have to refer a case to the Justice Department that can include ECS at ENRD, U.S. Attorney's offices, and just at a high level, walk us through how that relationship works as you're pursuing a case. 
Yeah, so I, I often say what we lack in um, you know numbers or resources, and um, I, I think what's really positive um, with the current administration is we're, we're now being asked what we need, right? So I think there's a really positive, strong uh, future ahead of us here in CID. Um, really, the name of the game in this job is partnerships. It's relationships. Um, so you really have to build um, those relationships with your allies. Um, really, we work with across the 94 judicial districts in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, we have key partnerships specifically at what we call Maine Justice, right? The Department of Justice Environmental Crime Section. Um, for us, I think what kind of differentiates maybe uh, some from criminal is we, we investigate, right? And really we include the Department of Justice at the earliest possible stage. Um, you know, we definitely need their expertise. And I think the key is just communication and discussion. Um, so we coordinate very closely with them uh, at the earliest possible moment. Doug, any, anything to add there? No, but beyond the fact that I learned early that you've got to bring DOJ on uh, at the outset, you know, as early as possible um, to be successful. These are big, complex cases. Ultimately, the prosecutors are the ones who have to uh, potentially sell a case to a jury, convince a judge. And so that early partnership is really critical. You don't walk in and dump the case file and say, here's the completed investigation. That will not work in these cases. So uh, early engagement, early and often engagement with DOJ is really critical. And Jess mentioned the administration and let me, let me direct this question to her. Uh, last month, June 21st, uh, Larry Starfield, who's the acting assistant administrator for WICA, issued a memo entitled Strengthening Environmental Justice Through Criminal Enforcement. Jess, can you just give us, you know, explain what this memo does? You know, does it change your day-to-day -day approach or what people should really take away from it. So the memo really does three things. Um, first, it strengthens the detection of crimes in overburdened communities. Second, it aims to improve outreach to crime victims, which is vitally important. Um, and third, it works to enhance remedies sought in environmental crimes cases. Um, to the second part of your question, you know, how has the, the memo changed the day to day? Um, Environmental justice has always been a factor, right, for criminal enforcement program, but certainly as a priority for the current administration, we're looking at new ways uh, to engage and communicate with environmental justice communities and ultimately secure justice. Um, that's what we're, we're, we're there to do. So um, this memo came out recently. Um, we're doing a lot of stuff in CID to kind of think outside the box um, and how we can contribute um, in EJ communities. And Doug, uh, just from the outside, do you have anything you want to add to that that memo? Well, I would say what I would add is that CID's been engaged in this, you know, work for decades. So it's a great reaffirmation of you know what they're doing, encouragement. But um, importantly, you know, the work that CID does often involves communities that are impacted by illegal pollution, and sometimes that involves criminal conduct. So. To me, it's it's really important, and again, it's uh, kind of a uh, encouragement for the work that CID has has been deeply involved in, really since the outset uh, of it being established. And Jess, turning back to you, you know, climate change has certainly been a priority for this administration. It seems like it's in the news every day. You know, as a component of EPA, does CID have a role in addressing climate change? I think so. I think 
you know, the role is certainly different, uh, right? And those are the, those are the program offices and, and the rule makers. Um, but, you know, we do enforce those federal laws that are in place to protect human health and the environment. I think, you know, talking about priorities and the current administration, we are working currently um, with um, a push to set up a couple different task forces um, with critical federal partners, you know, just in order to force, force multiply. We know what the priorities are, right? And now we have to kind of provide the strongest efforts possible um, to support this administration's focus in combating climate change. And Doug, switching topics a little bit, but maybe not so much. I'm going to ask you about something near and dear to your heart and then, you know, ask Jess to weigh in. But does big data factor into criminal investigations, whatever big data means? Uh, yes, near and dear to my heart. And it should. And I think it increasingly will, you know, kind of pivoting back to your question to Jess about climate, um, you know, the government under this administration is taking this whole government approach. And CID is not, as you know, Jess pointed out, the regulators or the program offices or the subject matter experts. Um, but if you look at some of the reporting requirements, you look at the greenhouse gas reporting data. Is that data accurate? Um, is it uh, is it legitimate? Is it authentic? That's an area where big data, climate, and potentially CID uh, can evaluate whether companies are being uh, truthful in their reporting. So I think that type of thinking, applying um, kind of data and analysis is really critical. You know, I think, um, you know, 10 plus years ago, we started what I would characterize as a small data effort um, related to fraud in the renewable fuels market, um, looking at what information the agency had, submissions, analysis, et cetera. And that continues to, uh, you know, uh, be a really important initiative and bring uh, criminals to justice. Uh, Jess had a, a press release recently of a, I think a hundred million dollar plus matter. And so um, I think big data is huge. I think if there's any investment, uh, if I were to go back, you know, in my tenure and I could advocate for, it would be more analytical support to take on data because that's what's driving much of the economy and much of the compliance world at this point. Yeah, you, you raised several interesting points and Jess did as well, and I'm going to, you know, see if if uh, there's a topic here where we could discuss a little bit more. But, you know, it's not uncommon to see in a criminal investigation the FBI or other agencies, I mean, you know, like a postal inspector even. Do you think with this emphasis on climate change, all of government and big data, and without getting into any specific investigations, do you think it's going to be more likely that you'll see other agencies you partner with uh, in this space, whether it's climate change or other issues you're trying to tackle? I do. I think, you know, um, as administrations come and go, right, you have kind of certain agencies that have a primary role, right, and who pop up. And I think when you don't, you want to find your niche, right? What is my role here? How can I play? How can I get into this game? Um, how does how can my agency contribute uh, to the current priorities? Um, you know, big data, Doug hit, hit the nail on the head, is essential, right? Not only for evidentiary purposes, factual purposes. Um, the amount of digital evidence seized during uh, our environmental investigations has increased significantly, right? So it's not only kind of data in what we're looking at evidentiary-wise, but it's the review of this data. And I think... Um, to Doug's point, uh, we are doing that right now, right? That's one of our priorities. It's analytical assistance and it's requesting 
assistance. We have a, a great uh, function down in Jacksonville. It's called the National Computer Forensics Lab, um, where we really just have some created and talented folks looking to provide case agents the most effective mechanisms for reviewing the seized data, right? So you talk about different agencies. I think the Department of Justice, um, we rely heavily on them, right, and, and their tools related to big data and evidence review. So, yeah, uh, Justin, to, to your point, I think certainly uh, folks are going to look, okay, how can I engage here, right? How, how can I be a part of this effort? And on a related front, uh, I, I don't know, we'll stick with you, uh, Jess, but it seems like these days, uh, because of COVID, there's lots of discussion of global supply chains with manufacturing, distribution, and importation of goods occurring across the globe. What challenges do you face in CID if you're going to have to investigate potential crimes that may occur across the globe? You know, and every federal investigation, right, especially a complex one, are always challenging. The degrees of complexity are, are immense. I, I think criminals will certainly go to great lengths to avoid getting caught. Um, internationally, right, adds a whole other component uh, for us. Uh, right now, training and detection is huge, right? If, if folks at the border and, and folks that are importing don't know what to look for, um, then, you know, it's very challenging for us to get those leads that we need to look at uh, criminal investigation. So it really is training and detection with our partners at Customs Border Patrol and Homeland Security Investigations. Um, I will say that DOJ's environmental crime section has been an amazing, immense asset uh, for EPA CID when it comes to international and global investigations. Um, they just have a lot of the conduits into um, just a wealth of countries, and they've just been immense with their connections at Interpol as well. Um, you know, you probably saw, or maybe you didn't, we did a significant a push into COVID fraud um, when the pandemic arose, and a lot of that um, came from overseas. There was a strong overseas component. So um, certainly it makes it very challenging. And again, it's the strength of our partnerships um, and certainly our relationship with DOJ. Yeah, I would agree with Jess. It's all about partnerships. If you've got those connections, relationships with the larger agencies that have that international reach, uh, then you can be successful in those instances and especially as supply chains extend and the issues compliance issues extend as well yes those investigations Doug, they can stretch like the uh the river at the uh, english gardens in munich inside joke um <laughs> and this is really i'll start with with jess and, and get, get some historical perspective from from doug but uh, someone at our, our shop, Nicole, who's much smarter and younger than me, you know, had an interesting question about how is fraud tackled in environmental credit markets? I mean, RFS, this is the typical example. But then is there some thought that, you know, that type of fraud, those type of fraud cases could extend to people who falsely claim they're providing EJ benefits? So it's an interesting question. wonder if, uh, starting with Jess, if you had any thoughts on that. We're certainly prepared to apply what we've learned. In our RINs fraud work to other areas, I think it, as they arise federally. Um, as you've likely seen, the lengthy sentences associated with RINs fraud defendants should make it clear to folks that there will be a, a steep price to pay um, when it comes to fraud in any type of credit markets. Um, you know, Doug, uh, under his leadership, right, he, he kind of was at, at the forefront of this, and I um, would love to hear what he has to say about it. You know, as regards fraud and EPA benefits, um, specifically, I'd, I'd expect the Office of Inspector General will be eager to tackle that aspect um, from the fraud, waste, and abuse perspective. 
Doug? Yeah. I think, you know, the key to like looking at these fraud issues that impact the environment is really, you know, looking at them from both, you know, what's changing in the economy, because that's going to drive behavior. Um, what's changed in regulations or are there changes in regulations? Um, and then what's the data to support and help identify that fraud? So that's years ago where we kind of started with RFS and, and the agency's been running with it for, you know, a solid decade. But as you look at things like, you know, climate offsets, there's, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities for potential fraud in this space. Um, but to me, it's really starting with, you know, where's the economy going? Cause that drives incentives. Are there regulations changed that are, that are, you know, inadvertently or unintentionally opening the door for misconduct? And then what's the universe of, of data out there that you can help gain a picture of it um, before it hopefully, you know, gets uh, out of control? Thanks, Doug. And this, I always try to end with this question. I think it's my favorite question in these discussions, and I think it's vitally important just for our country. But I'll start with Jess. I mean, you mentioned your dad was in the ATF, your husband's in the Air Force you're serving. Um, but unfortunately, polls show that there's really a, a, a significant drop in interest in public service among the, the younger folks. So starting with you and then turning it over to Doug, you know, what would you say, Jess, just to encourage uh, younger people to serve, you know, whether that's at EPA, another agency, uh, the military, or some other fashion? I think it's perspective. I, I just think the perspective you gain um, from a job in public service is is vital, you know, and it, it can be at the smallest levels, right? I really think everyone should try as part of their career, and we've seen uh, folks, you know, it's not like it used to be, right? We've stayed in the same career for 30, 40 years. I mean, people are jumping to where where they find work that's valuable and meaningful to them, and I think that experience and serving as a public servant at some point, whether it's local, city, state, um, is just so important. Um, you know, it, for me personally, it was just, is it, Doug kind of talked about this, it's the tangible result, right? It's kind of seeing something at the end of the day or the end of the week or the end of a year. Um, and I think you can accomplish that um, with the federal government, the military, wherever you decide to serve. Um, but truthfully, really, I think we need good, driven, experienced people um, who work with integrity in all areas, right? That means private sector, that means public sector. Um, so I do think I would encourage everyone uh, to get an experience, uh, however small or short, um, working in the public sector. Yeah, and I would just add that, um, you know, I grew up playing sports, being on teams, coaching, and I enjoyed that, you know, camaraderie, that mission-based focus, and really doing something that was, you know, living beyond yourself for, for a purpose. Um, and you can do that in a lot of a lot of ways, but you can certainly do that uh, in the you know occupations that that uh, Jess and I have been involved in for for many years. And I think he, you know it's it's hard to get that in other venues sometimes, but that mission-based focus um, is really you know for me was very meaningful, and I had a lot of fun. You know, <laughs> I, I, I you know the, as Jess knows well there are days that aren't fun because of some of the things that, you know, she has to deal with. But overwhelmingly, um, it was an enjoyable career. Um, and I worked with really, you know, team-oriented, good quality people who I learned from, like, literally, you know, every week. Um, so I hope people will consider it. Um, 
because we, you know, the the government, uh, law enforcement, um, we need good people. Thanks, Doug, and thank you, Jess. And I know you're both extremely busy, so thank you so much for providing your insights and time to your, to your list, our listeners. Have a great day. Thank you. It was wonderful. I appreciate the invite. Likewise. Appreciate being with you. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.